and functional expertise. Now, at the worst, I'd say they could be, you know, CMO can be seen as a bit of a tactical or luxury function, right? We didn't invent Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is a marketing that F is the world you decide. But you're probably wondering, does the world need another effing marketing podcast? I'm your host, Ian Truscott, and this podcast serves as my excuse to chat with marketing friends old and new that I've met through my career as a senior leader and trusted advisor, and hopefully share some marketing street knowledge that will bring out the Rockstar CMO in you. Come say hello at Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn. This episode was recorded on Friday the 4th of June. I hope you've had a good week and you are well, safe and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. This week, Julie Ogilvie, former Serious Decisions and Forrester Research Director, returns to talk about cultivating influencers in B2B. Our guest is Richard Medcalf, an executive coach, and we talk about the relationship between the CMO and the C-suite. And of course, I will round off the week with my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, for a chat and a cocktail. Right, let's get started, shall we? On to our first segment. As you heard last week, Julie Ogilvie has agreed to join us for the next few weeks, sharing some of her advice on marketing topics that you could describe as greatest hits or maybe pet peeves. If you missed last week's, we had an excellent conversation about creating categories. This week, it's a turn of influences. Welcome back, Julie, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. And we're calling this segment, well, we were going to call this segment, Julie Ogilvie's Greatest Hits. <laughs> I think last time you were saying they're pet peeves. I'm, I'm interested where we're going to go with this one, whether this is a greatest hit or a pet peeve. Um, and we're going to talk about, let me looking at my notes, cultivating influencers. I do like this topic. Yeah. Um, where are we going to go with this one, Julie? Well, um, so I spent a great deal of my career in communications. And communications is really about, you know, strategic communications is understanding mm-hmm. how to implement a two-step communications process. So, yeah. you know, convincing some third-party intermediary who's important to their audience, yeah. you know, to um, support and reinforce your message. And and that's really how I think of influencers. I think of influencers in a very sort of a broad way is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, understanding who are all those different types of third-party intermediaries and how do they have an impact on the audience. And unfortunately, so on the pet peeve side um, today, <laughs> when people hear that term influencer, they yeah. often think of it in a very narrow way. And and what they're thinking about is more sort of the consumer marketing yeah. side of influencers, which is simply, yeah. you know, paid endorsers, you know. Yeah. And um, if you choose to go in that direction of thinking about your influencer strategy in that way, I think that that is a yeah. big mistake. And so that would definitely be something I, I, I would try to warn people against because mm-hmm. – um, the B2B buying process is just so different from a consumer. Yeah. It's much more considered, obviously. Um, it's something where there's so much, there's so much money on the line. There's, you know, personal yeah. standing. There's yeah, the emotion. 
often takes months for people to come to a decision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not going to be in most cases, there isn't just one single influencer that's going to help you to achieve all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, you have multiple parties involved, a long term decision, and the concerns that the audience have, uh, as they're making this decision, the Mm -hmm. buyers, the would be buyers can change from you know, early on in the process to later in the process. And uh-huh. so really what we would tell people to think about doing when we were at um, Serious Decisions, uh, later Forrester, was to really cultivate sort of a basket of influencers yeah. uh, that are arrayed around a really strong understanding of who your customer is, what their needs are, and what are the potential sticking points in this buying decision? Mm-hmm. Like where mm-hmm. do you need to come in and get them over that hurdle? Mm-hmm. Where are they feeling, you know, like they're not feeling confident in your message to them? What is it that you can do? Who is it? Who is it uh, that is going to help to reinforce that message and yeah. get them over that hurdle? So how how would you recommend that B2B marketers identify those influencers? So, I mean, we often i'm not going to say struggles the wrong word but people tend to create their personas in in a in a in a hotel conference room with a whiteboard (laughs) (laughs) Um, but maybe we'll go on to that in another in another episode but well once once we've got a true view of who it is that's influencing who our buyer is how do we then find who's influencing yeah and you're absolutely correct very often we would talk to clients and we would say, do you, have you done personas? Yes, we've done yeah, personas. Yeah. And it turned out to be something like that where we sat, we went to an offsite and we sat in the room and we filled up, you know, mm-hmm. pads of paper with, mm-hmm. with um, descriptions of the audience. And that's a fine, that's a, an okay way to start, but you really absolutely need to go out then and confirm your understanding with the audience by actually speaking to audience members and, yeah. um, understanding and it's just it's simple questions and this is often something that is not part of a persona exercise but absolutely should be which is understanding what are the audience's uh, watering holes is what we used to call them yeah. so who do they who do they trust and where do they go for information mm. so that should be a part of that research that you're doing on the audience and as i'm sure you've seen in your own career that's it's amazing. It's almost always where the whole process has gone wrong is that they haven't actually spoken to the audience or tried to, to get understanding. Yeah. We talk about that. um, uh, We've spoken about that actually a few times here on this podcast is about the fact marketers need to start getting out and and meeting people. I mean, even if they start off by meeting sales, that's a start, right? But they start meet the clients, meet potential customers and, and find out what makes them tick. So um, the other thing I'll just say about that too, is just that, it doesn't have to be like a big expensive survey. I think mm. a lot of times people get derailed from doing market research because they go, oh, well, we can't afford to do a big yeah. global survey. But, yeah. you know, you can just go out and talk to people. Like if you talk yeah. to, a, think about how much you learn from talking to six or 10 customers. You yeah. learn so much and you understand them so much better. Yeah. And you begin to see the the you know the commonalities across mm-hmm. an audience and that's really what you need to do it doesn't have to always be some big project you know 
Right. And where do you think this sits? Because, um, you know, influencer marketing as a channel, which I think is the B2C way of thinking about influencers, sits with, you know, the com sort of PR, AR kind of area. Where do you think this sits within a large B2B organization? Well, it still does typically sit yeah. with the communications. and But this brings up another sort of issue that I saw a lot of, which is okay. in a lot of B2B organizations, the comms team is not well integrated within marketing. Right. In, in maybe half of the organizations that I talked to, comms was actually separate than marketing, which right. is, I don't you know. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy yeah. thing. And typically when you see that, comms is acting uh, as like a CEO mouthpiece. You know, mm-hmm. most of what they're doing is like executive comms and they're, you know, oh, we're going to Davos, you know, yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever you know, um, but uh, you know, so so that's a big missing link right there. Is that comms? I believe should absolutely be a part of marketing. Should be part of just the overall marketing planning process. Yeah. Um, and and then you know, comms should be really helping to understand how do we implement marketing strategies again yeah. through influencers. The way that we used to talk about it is we saw sort of seven different kind of archetypes of influencers mm-hmm. that are built around different types of needs that uh, buyers have. Yeah. And for instance, um, one type is that's very well known in B2B is, is the trusted advisor. So, yeah. so, you know, this is really the role of analysts, but sometimes it can be played by a business consultant. So mm-hmm. it's not always an analyst. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in other cases, it could be sort of a community. So, for instance, if you have to um, if you have to sell your product, if you need to get the buy in of developers, there's many different developer communities that are very important. It could be an online community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage clients to try to look for different ways that they could develop. Mm-hmm. Sometimes companies become really laser focused on one one particular mm. analyst or a small set of analysts mm. where they're not going to be successful. So there, but if you look at it and you really understand what is it that's causing this, this particular client to get hung up on this decision, sometimes yeah. you can find sort of a replacement for that, um, that one analyst that you're trying to influence. Right. Right. And I mean, it's now, it's got more complicated, hasn't it? The, the world of B2B because it used to be, um, sim- a simple choice of, of, of two top tier analyst firms and a, and a few, um, below them. And it's, and it's those people that were influencing all the, but nowadays, I think with social media and, and highly influential bloggers and some, some, you know, great analysts are, are now doing their own thing and writing their own thing that, 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 kind of influencer market is now fractured, hasn't it? It has. And and you'll often see different influencers are going to wear different hats. So you may Mm. have somebody who is a tech journalist and they may also have a personal blog. And um, another one I'll say is, you know, customers are important, like Mm. having that customer support because when you're a buyer, you really want to know what it, what is it going to be like to actually do business with this company? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, we all hear the great sales pitch, right? And you wonder, well, but what's it really like? Yeah. And when customers speak on your behalf, in a way, it's like they're sharing their inside information about what it's like to do business with this company. And 
you know, we, we used to do research every couple of years on asking people questions about what were the greatest influences on your yeah. buying process. Not surprisingly, analysts come up really high in, yeah. in the buying decisions, but customers are very uh, yeah. close and, and customers play a role in, in almost every part of the buying process, you know, early, middle, late stage, playing different types of roles, but mm-hmm. You know, they're reinforcing that this is the right decision, that you can trust this company, et cetera. Um, and I think with social media, um, there's more ways for average people who are, you know, yeah. experts in their own world to get out there and have important voices. So that's yeah. a good, very important thing to think about. How are we going to cultivate um, and encourage our customers to speak on our behalf? Yeah, and I think that customer connection is important because what I've um, what I've always thought about when you're dealing with analysts or influencers is what can you offer them? And I think a lot of the time with when you're working with an analyst, especially if they're new in in, in the category or then that is actually they they want to hear from the people that are doing the work, the implement the right. people that are doing the implementation, the people that have that have seen the benefit of the category that person covers. Now as a vendor, you can offer them access to that, right? So they can actually speak right. to real customers who, who have had, um, who, who can share those stories about how this, because often analysts are passionate about their category, aren't they? I mean, they're obviously not passionate about vendors, that would be wrong, <laughs> but they're passionate about their category. So they want to see how that has, how that's changing the world. And they, and you can, so on that point, what do you think that people can offer influencers in order to get that engagement? That is that you've come right down to. That is the, mm-hmm. the crux of it is how do you create shared value? So yeah. you need to have, there's got to be value for you, the vendor, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The value for the customer. What does the customer want? And then what can you give? What What is the value to the influencer? Mm-hmm. And that's often the piece that people don't really spend enough time thinking about. And some of the things you just mentioned are important if you think about different types of influencers. One of the things they want is access to information because that's how an influencer becomes an even bigger influencer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constantly looking at how they can increase yeah. their reach and their credibility and you know their influence yeah. on the market. And you can do that by say offering access to the within your company people who are making the decisions, and it, that may be your your CTO or maybe your CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, putting the right people on the phone with analysts and letting them have access and, and access to the vision and so forth. Um, And then uh, again, you know, customers uh, having that customer support is such an important part of uh, an influencer strategy. And again, you know, this is why an influencer strategy needs to be understood and accepted across the company. It has to come, you know, You have to have the buy-in of your executives, your engineering team. They all need to understand why is it important for me to make time to get on the phone with a particular um, influencer and give them the background. And and maybe it's something like, you know, sometimes um, bringing these people into your organization could even be in some kind of a paid engagement where you're saying we really want to get your advice but getting that's really what the key is to get the trust Mm. get the two-way conversation going yeah absolutely and and i think that um 
I mean, I don't want to delve into the murky sort of way that people feel about analyst relations and that you have to pay to play in order to be covered. And that's absolute bullshit. I know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a lot of that. But on the other hand, what better way than to engage with somebody who's influential in your market than actually have them on board as an advisor? And then there's that quid pro quo. And it's a, yes, a financial quid pro quo, sure. But you are. are. And it also points back to um, what we were talking about last week in terms of defining the category. Because if you're engaging with the influences of the market, your view about the direction of this category is also an essential part of that influence, isn't it? Right, it is. And I I always, you know, on that whole question of pay to play. Yeah. you know, it's really what you're paying for when you get a subscription to an analyst firm or you uh, bring them in for some kind of an engagement is you're paying for access to them. And, you know, having worked in that field, Mm -hmm. you know, what I didn't understand when I was running analyst relations, what I would get on the phone, I'd be so angry. Why don't they remember? Why don't they remember? (laughs) Only a month ago. But of yeah. course, they've talked to 100 clients yeah, yeah. Of that month. Yeah. So you really have to get into a regular cadence of if yeah. you identify particular influencers, it's not like you can just say, okay, we're going to um, do a call with them and then we're done with them. You really have to, it's important to, to identify a limited set of influencers so that you can say, let's really develop this relationship over time because you know, there's just constant noise in the marketplace, and and uh, it's That's such a that is such a good point. I mean, I've been on both sides. I was only an analyst for for a year for uh, a smaller analyst firm, but you know, I I was taking briefings, and and I've been on both sides of the table. And I think that if you don't brief very frequently, what happens is is you you end up talking for three quarters of the time on the, about the table stakes, right, right? That they've heard from everybody else. Now, right. I've I remember because um, I was covering web content management, and I would. I, it would be indiscernible in my mind who it was that would talk to me about a particular table stakes feature, right? But if somebody was engaging on something that was interesting or knew that they were doing, then that stuck in your memory and you, you you talked about that. Now, if you only brief every quarter or something, you spend, like you were saying, you spend half your time reminding the analyst who you are and that you've got these table stakes covered and do you do Yes, we do that. Yes, we do that. Yeah. Before you get onto the sizzle, which is the bit they might remember or the access to the customer or something interesting one of your customers has done. And so I think that's a really, I think that's, I've, I've talked too much for somebody who's interviewing somebody else. But <laughs> I think that's a really important, that's a really important you know, point. I, absolutely. I and mean, some of what you're getting to is how do you manage those calls too? Yeah, which, yeah. It's so easy to just spend the first 15 minutes of a call yeah. talking about, our founder and you know yeah. these things yeah. and it's like ah you know we're yeah. just it's- how many offices you've got you know yes. how many people are there and, and stuff like that whereas there are some interesting stats probably in those slides but it's figuring out which is the thing that the well what used to annoy me was that people would come on the call and they would have no idea who you were you know they hadn't even bothered looking you up and looking at you looking you up on LinkedIn and understand what thing you might be interested in what you're writing about or you right. know I think all of that research needs to come up front doesn't it before you deal with the analysts and, and something can something can really click can't it it's like oh, they're really interested in this. I've got a customer story for them. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, so being at Serious Decisions, we mm. were all B2B. Yeah. And we would take briefings from yeah. various MarTech firms, and they would come on with all consumer examples. And we'd wow. keep saying, okay, <laughs> some B2B examples. And, you know, yeah. 
yeah. sort of go right by them. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, 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 I touched on Content Marketing Institute last week, but I think that's where they found their place in in the market as influencers in that they do an awful lot of research into B2B, which is fairly sparse before that, because like you say, because I think as well, because as consumers, we understand B2C, don't we? And we understand how it affects us. And so it's easy to pluck out B2C examples, but B2B is a little harder. It certainly is. And, and you know, just thinking about content marketing, it takes it to a whole new level just yeah. because of the complexity of the decisions yeah. that are being made and, you know, talking about technology and things like that. It's, yeah. you know, more than here I'm wearing this, you know, cute dress from, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we've scratched the surface that we've come up to time. And um, but I think that's a really important topic about influencers and B2B. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts there. Your, um, your greatest hit. I don't think that was a pet peeve. I think that was a greatest hit. That was the greatest hit. I enjoyed this topic. I wish people would think about it more. So Yeah, no, yeah. fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Julie. What I should have done, uh, and I didn't do this last week, is um, when if people want to um, find out more about this topic from you, Julie, where will they find you when they, when they spin the dial on the interwebs? Well, my current home is chubbycouple.media, which is <laughs> a, uh, my husband, who is also a, a, a CMO and strategist, yeah. um, where we are pontificating about various uh, personal and professional topics. Splendid. Well, I'll uh, include a link to that in the show notes. And of course, I think you're also on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'll include those yeah. links too. Uh, thank you very much, Julie. And will I see you next week for another another one of your hits or one of your pet peeves i will be happy to return thank you very much i'll see you then okay. Bye-bye. thank you julie an essential topic in b2b marketing influencing their influencers as you heard you can find julie on linkedin at chubbycouple.media and she's ogleview on twitter I will, of course, include all her links in the show notes. Please say hello and let us know what you think of influencer marketing. My next guest is Richard Medcalf, an executive coach and leadership consultant to exceptional founders and CEOs and their teams. As you'll hear, his clients are elite performers who have already achieved incredible things and still have the ambition to achieve more in terms of their impact and influence. He does this through one-to-one coaching, working with a whole leadership team or scaling this to create a high-performance culture throughout the business. After a master's degree at Oxford University, Richard started his career in a premier strategy consultancy where he rose to become the youngest ever partner. He then spent 11 years at tech giant Cisco, elevating Cisco's relevance in the C-suite of its Fortune 100 customers before being selected for an elite team by Cisco's president and CEO, John Chambers and Chuck Robbins, to catalyze strategic partnerships and new business models. Keen to marry the disciplines of strategy and leadership in service of his clients, he qualified as a senior leadership consultant and executive coach before founding X Quadrant in 2017. Very lucky to have Richard share his advice with us. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Richard, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Ian. It's great to see you. No, it's, yeah, it's nice to see you too. Nice to meet you. Um, so, Richard, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've obviously done a little bit of an intro before we start, but tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, so I guess I like to say that I'm what you get if you put a McKinsey consultant, a slightly orthodox pastor, and an entrepreneur into a blender. 
I like that. Will it blend? Will it blend? And what happens when you do put those things into a blend and it blends? So, um, yeah, not to bore you with my life story, you know, I was was a strategy consulting partner. I worked in tech uh, at Cisco Mm -hmm. for many years. And now what I do is I I guess I help some of the most impressive tech sector execs on the planet take themselves and their team Mm -hmm. to a whole new level of success. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Right, right. So you're a CEO advisor. That's what... yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I'm a founder of a coaching business. It's called X Quadrant, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I I I work with founders and CEOs and other C- senior execs, often mm-hmm. as I said in tech and fast-moving teams. Uh, so, mm-hmm. example, one of my clients runs a two billion tech services company. Another just raised 200 million for his technology sector business. Another one um, just been nominated as Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst Young for his growth right. and profitability. So these are right. fascinating clients, but what they sh- um, what they they always have, I suppose, is a couple of psychographics, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. So, and sometimes I don't work with people who are not CEOs, right? But they yeah. think like CEOs, as I like to say. Right. And what I mean by that is they are high achievers. Mm-hmm. You might know, you're sure you know people like this, probably one yourself, right? High achievers, smart, strategic, fascinated by complexity, mm-hmm. great track record. People look from the outside going, wow, this is great. Look at where you've got to. Yeah. But inside, it just feels, it's just what I do. It's not that special. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure, and I'm hungry for more impact. Yeah. And I know that I can 10x what I'm doing. I, I know I can play a bigger game. Yeah. But when you've already got to a certain level, yeah. then re-engineering that success formula that's got you there right. feels a bit risky. It feels a bit uncertain. Right. What got me here is not going to take me there. And that's the game I love to play with um with my clients that's fascinating because it is fascinating to learn what goes on on the inside of folks that you look at particularly nowadays with the highly curated social media that we get to see of people of of what's really going on and what's really ticking Mm. so that must be a fascinating work yeah it's interesting and yeah and i do that various levels i mean one thing i do have is a a podcast as well um Mm -hmm. you know vive the podcast revolution and all that (laughs) absolutely um, and that's called the Impact to Multiply at CEO mm-hmm. podcast. I yeah. say it's a podcast for CEOs and people who think like CEOs. And I do two things. I, I present some of my own content, but I also mm-hmm. interview other CEOs. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting because you start to you know, pick up some of these common themes. Yeah. You know, and even CEOs playing at the highest levels. Yeah. You know, they're actually going, you know, I need to get myself out of of some of this operational stuff. I need to make these shifts. I need to be doing less of this and more of this. And and all these things kind of comes up no matter what level you are. There's always a next step if you look for it. Yeah. And, uh, and isn't it fascinating when you run a podcast, it gives you a great excuse to talk to some really fascinating people, doesn't it? <laughs> and then back to this podcast, um, as this is a marketing show, um, the reason why I wanted to chat to you as a CEO coach was to get your take from a CEO's perspective of the role of C- the CMO and the role of marketing. Um, mm. So how do you see in, in, the, in the various interactions you're having with these CEOs, how do you see that relationship right now? I guess at the best... Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the CMO, I think, does a couple of key functions for the CEO. Mm-hmm. The first one is can really amplify the CEO's voice yeah. and give them a platform yeah. and sharpen them up, sharp, sharpen them up, right? Mm-hmm. So the CMO can be a great advisor to the CEO in terms of how do we actually take your the vision, the strategy that you are championing and yeah. get it in the right places and get it to land. So I think right. that is a key role. And the other one is really within the company, mm-hmm. at best, the CMO can be a fantastic connector yeah. because often CMO doesn't have the direct 
authority to drive the products, the services, the yeah, delivery, yeah. or the rest of it. But what they do have is that vision of the customer journey yeah. and of the ultimate outcome. Right. And often that's the factor that gets lost when you start to look at all the different silos. So I think the CMO at best can be looking at the gaps in between the silos right. Right. rather nice. than just their own functional expertise. Now, at the worst, I'd say they could be, you know, CMO can be seen as a bit of a tactical or a luxury function, right? We we did an event, let's do an event, you know, let's roll out a campaign. And it's kind of, well, there's the sales engine, which is going, and then marketing Mm. is some magic dust that we sprinkle on top, and we're not quite sure. Right, right. Right, because they don't see the value. And and that sort of, I was going to ask you about, um, there's a lot of talk about the tenure of CMOs and the fact that Mm. it, it's gotten shorter. I don't know that the data completely supports it. I think it's like 46 months or so. I can't remember what it mm-hmm. is, but it's less than the other, other members of the C-suite. Why do you think that is? Is it because there is that disconnect between what you what the CEO sees as the value of the CMO and what they could do for them and what's, what, what then it turns into or what their perception is of, of marketing? I think um, my suspicion is that people rise up um, uh-huh. through marketing based on their marketing skills, right? And everything yeah. else. And they have a real functional expertise of marketing. Yeah. Um, and the danger is that when they arrive on, at the C-suite, they're treating marketing really as a bit of a black box, right? That produces stuff, mm-hmm. campaigns and this and mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily always really co-creating with the other execs to really solve what are the business issues that right. so-called business leaders, right? I mean, the yeah. P&L owners, whatever, yeah. might be feeling. And so when you actually create those alliances with those leaders, mm-hmm. they say, like, what is it that the business needs, right? And what's marketing's role in the solution to that? I think you mm-hmm. can create uh, stronger outcomes, right? And and more support against the base. And, right. and I guess the, the, the other way of looking at that is... Um, don't set expect. Don't assume that there are expectations in place <laughs> about what marketing does, what it's right. there for, what its value right. is. But create agreements around that. So right. take the lead on defining success. Right. right. What you know? What is marketing's role in the business? Right. Is it mm-hmm. magically generating leads? Is it positioning the brand in a certain way? You know, mm-hmm. what is the business counting on marketing for? And don't accept all the vanilla answers that other members of the exec team will originally give you. It's up to you as CMO to really define that and explain why it's a key role and what the, how that's going to drive the company's strategy. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of absolutely having those conversations uh, and making sure that you get down to the level of detail. It's easy to, it's it's almost easy to kind of get a quick, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do some campaign, do some stuff. It's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But actually drilling deep so that the exec team colleagues get that aha. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's important. So in some mm-hmm. way, I guess, two things, really building those alliances across the business yeah. and defining success, I think, yeah. I think not every CMO does brilliantly. And, and do you think that, do you think it's easier? Or, I mean, I, a lot of the blame for this sort of thing lies, you know, it, oh, marketing isn't understood and it's everybody else's fault. Is it that the, the CMOs are defaulting to what they know, which is run campaigns and stuff like that, and uh, are not honing those skills and, and not, not um speaking in that same language of what the value is to the rest of the c-suite is that is that yeah it's funny isn't it it's funny isn't it it's like how do you market marketing it's yes it's it's really fascinating at that level yeah i mean one of the things i say to all my clients is what made it successful last year 
yeah. when we're successful next year. But we almost always rely on that success formula yeah. built last year because it just gave it yeah. just gave us a result, right? It just yeah. gave us a successful year, perhaps last year. Yeah. And so I think making that shift to say, you know, how do we, yeah, within marketing, you know, how do we um, add value into the business? And I think often yeah. it's going to be found in the gaps not it's not going to be on the org chart it's going to be in yeah. the gaps how do we get how do we get sales and product working real closely together right how do we yeah. how do we take customers along a journey mm-hmm. and i think you can lead the discussion at that right you can lead the discussion but you have right. to step out of that comfort zone a little bit and and rather than being operational yeah because as a cmo i mean you've got access to all of that information and data you're right you know the cmo has that unique position where they have that purview across you know i mean we've got data coming out of our ears right so in theory um from what you've described about mapping the customer journey understanding those gaps and then um liaising with other members of the team to where those gaps sit sounds like a natural thing mm. that we can easily do so that's that's interesting and what what practical steps what practical advice i mean i know you were an advisor mm. to ceos rather than cmos but what practical steps would you give for yeah. for people who are doing that step up and they're used to they're, they're well they're good at executing on their craft but they need to learn this sort of language of that that level yeah. of these disciplines yeah i can i can give you that and i can give it from both sides of the story because mm. you know I, I do work with as we said a lot of ceos and founders uh, mm. either those who are new to role or those who are just taking yeah. you know want to step up a bigger game and going through complex change but i also do work with people who are uh, you know, either on that fast track coming up to the board mm-hmm. level, who just yeah. or just got promoted onto the C-suite, who are just one level below as well. And so, I think some of the things I've learned from those other C-suite leaders would definitely apply mm-hmm. to to people in the marketing function. So, here are a couple of ideas. Um, so, yeah, I think the first one is uh, conversely, stop trying to wow them with your marketing skills. <laughs> right like like that's a, like that's a health factor right i love it and so as a marketing is seen in a functional context you know yeah. it, it means if you just go in with your marketing hat yeah you you're not seen at that point as a peer really you're right or you're seen as yeah you're the specialist you're, you know you like yeah. the marketing yeah. geek over here for marketing things what yes. you want to is yeah you've got your marketing hat but yeah. also you need to wear the business leader hat which mm-hmm. is cross-functional you know, what are the business outcomes? How do we yeah. partner? How do we collaborate? Yeah. And how do I so, you know, how do I help solve your problems, Mr. CEO or CTO yeah. or whatever? I mean, you can solve CTO problems. CTO is you know under a massive set of um, everyone. Everyone wants stuff from the CTO. Yeah. You know, it's unfulfillable set yeah. of development requests. He's not yeah. got enough resources. All the rest of it, right? Yeah. How do you help solve his problems with a yeah, marketing yeah. lens? You can do yeah. that, right? How can you help sales, etc.? Yeah. And so I think. Yeah. Not wearing the marketing hat, but actually uh, solving cross-functional problems. Mm-hmm. I think the second one is don't just have a marketing plan. Have mm-hmm. a plan for marketing. Wow. Okay. So where do you want to take marketing as a function, right? What's the value it's adding now? And what's the value it should be adding and could be adding in the right. future, right? What does right. the future hold? And where are you trying to take things? Again, start to communicate them, build agreement within the executive team that that mm-hmm. is going to add more value for them, that it's a brighter future mm-hmm. in terms of what marketing can deliver. Mm-hmm. So I see, again, you know, marketing experts can be really, really good at uh, delivering on the operational yeah. elements. Yeah. But what are you trying to do broader than that? Right? What are the capabilities you're building into the, right. into the, into the machine? 
Right, moving beyond the awareness and MQL conversation then. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, yeah. and I, so I suppose that there's this kind of two resources that, that, came to, that come to mind when you talk about this, like how do you move into the mm-hmm. um, C-suite or, or, or operate with a high level of impact there. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the first one is you need to free yourself from operations, mm-hmm. create margin so that you can think and act strategically, so you can build right. those relationships, those capabilities. Yeah. And um, it's really tricky, right? Because again, normally marketing, you know, probably under-resourced, whatever, you know, could mm-hmm. do with more people, a lot of mm-hmm. expectations, a lot of things being thrown your way. You need to be able to, though, rise above that avalanche yeah. and yeah. find time to think. And it's a key thing. Um, yeah. A little resource I have is um, on my website. You can go to xquadrant.com slash go slash productivity assessment is a hyphen mm-hmm. from the two last words and that productivity okay. assessment is a, it's an executive it's just 10 questions yeah but it will basically help you step back and think how much time am i actually focusing on those strategic things and where right. are the kind of the uh, the pitfalls that right. i am personally likely <laughs> to fall into yeah uh, so that could be a good little tool. And then there's an option to then go through like a free email series that I have on that very question of how do you free up your time for mm. strategic activity? Mm. I think that's really good point. I mean, that's an incredibly good point. I find that in my own um, a day job, day life is mm. <laughs> to, is to jump off the hamster. I mean, I'm always talking about the marketing hamster wheel that everybody jumps on and then we're just executing, 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 and nobody's really thinking somebody else chucks in another request into the hamster wheel and off you go. And everybody, you've got to step back, ask why. And then I really like this idea of thinking beyond what, what you can do as marketing now and then what marketing can do for the business in, in a year's time. That's I'm really, and I'll, and um, I'll add, those resources into the show notes so other people can look at them too yeah you mentioned the the the, the hamster wheel it's exactly yeah. that i say it's a hamster wheel or a flywheel the yeah. difference between the two is the hamster wheel is the things you're going to have to do for the next campaign the next yeah. project yeah. the next customer the yeah, next yeah. event yeah the flywheel is when you you would you invest your time on mm. things which create new capabilities so yeah. how do we simplify it so that i don't have to do it next time all right yeah how do i delegate you know how do i yeah. simplify build capabilities um in the business and that is yeah. the, the shift often yeah i love that i love, i mean that that sounds like the title of a blog post me moving from the the hamster wheel to the flywheel and I, I think any yeah. advice you can give people about doing that would be great because um you know that is the scourge of marketing is that is bit is becoming an execution marketing and doing doing what the business expects time and time again and reinventing its stuff and not taking that strategic view and not engaging the c-suite at that that kind of level i, I love that well uh, there's actually an article i i wrote about it i can again we can splendid linking um it's called the five influence killers. The subtle mm-hmm. tracks, the traps that keep you stuck in operations and out of the C-suite, right? And uh-huh. what you can do about it. And clearly one of those key ones is exactly what we just talked about. Yeah. You yeah. know, being on that hamster wheel, right? Yeah. Um, we can perhaps give the link in the show notes or whatever. But I um, will, absolutely. Yeah, I will. I think it's going to be a good set of show notes. You've, you've named three three resources there that sound fantastic. All right, so um, so that's how we're going to fix the relationship with the CEOs and CMOs. And I'm, I'm going to now move on to my final question, mm. which uh, is a, a regular feature we have uh, here on Rockstar CMO, which is called the swimming pool, where we chuck mm. all the snake oil, bullshit, and overhyped trends that plague this marketing craft we love. I don't know whether you love it. I do. <laughs> I love it, yeah. What, what a business. I love marketing, yeah. <laughs> what would you chuck in our Rockstar CMO swimming pool? 
Yeah, I had a good think about this. Obviously, I'm, you know, this is dangerous territory, right? Because I'm talking to a whole bunch of marketers and I'm not yeah. a professional marketer. But yeah, I'm going to say, here's a good one. Stop optimizing the funnel. Okay, really? Optimizing the funnel. Yeah, it's a good one, I thought, because everyone's I like, yeah, it. well, that's great. Well, the reason is it's a dangerous addiction because optimizing the funnel gives us numbers we can multiply together to show how valuable we are. Oh, look, I increased yes. this sales yes. page conversion rate by 1%. And if I multiply all that through my big numbers, I've saved you a billion dollars, Mr. Yes. CEO, right? Yes. The problem is that you're optimizing um, individual aspects of a system, a very complicated yes. system. So you can have masses of people coming into your funnel, but they're all the wrong people. Yes. So what I'd want to say is stop optimizing the funnel and start optimizing for happy customers. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we are, I mean, it, but it's such a trope and it, and it comes up a lot actually on this, uh, on this podcast is this idea that we're all um, engineers. I mean, we mentioned MQLs twice or three times already, right? Is it, is that's the way we want to optimize? Then how do we get to the MQL? And then there's all this data and it's always wonderfully, seductive to get involved mm. with optimizing but also what do you do once you've optimized well yeah i mean um i mean there's been some studies showing that you know you can actually you know if you imagine you build out your sales funnel and you say mm. let's optimize the first part and then we'll go yeah. to the second part and you've yeah. optimized the third part and the first part breaks right because suddenly yeah. say the people you who are coming in here you're yeah. optimizing for acquisition and over here you're optimizing for conversion and yeah. they're not the same and right. so it requires this kind of broader Mm-hmm. um system thinking yeah, yeah right yeah. which is to really to say like how do we actually um you know from the start like we know who our yeah. customers are going to be who are actually going to rave about our service mm-hmm. and how do we actually optimize for that at every stage in the process and find more of them than just find more, more of them more warm bodies at the top end yeah yeah i get it now that's fantastic thank you very much so that almost certainly will be going in now rockstar cmo swim pool it sounds like a very good I mean, we've been chucking MQLs in for the last few weeks, so, that's, <laughs> so I think this is all related. And then finally, um, so when people, well, you've you've already given us a few mm. links and and some excellent resources to go for. But when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where would they find mm. you, Richard? Yeah, so obviously, uh, two usual places. My, my website is um, xquadrant.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and say so there's a bunch of stuff there which people might find interesting. If even if you're not a CEO, hopefully yeah. these are things which anyone who's kind of trying to be ambitious yeah. and make things happen in the world will enjoy. There's the, there's the podcast we mentioned. And then find me on LinkedIn if you want to connect. I'm always happy. Just mention the podcast and happy to connect and um, well, start conversations. Is what the, I love. And the name of your podcast? So it's called The Impact Multiplier CEO. Excellent. Well, I'll be looking out for that and I'll include all the links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time, Richard. It's splendid to speak to you this morning. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I wanted to share something a bit different this week, the point of view of the CEO. I hope you found that insightful. I'll include all the links to the resources Richard referred to in the show notes. Definitely worth a look. Right, it's that time of the week. It's Friday evening and it's time to find out where my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, would like to transport us to for a marketing thought and a cocktail in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar. Good evening, Mullet. What are you drinking? 
Ah, uh, hello, my friend. Um, and as promised last week, I am swooping down from the air conditioning ducts <laughs> into the bar, and here I am with my fancy tuxedo on and everything. Um, <laughs> so tonight, um, we are going to have something pure. Mm. Um, we're going to go with a pure tequila because I have found a new tequila, um, and I have to I have to thank my friend uh, Jay Bear. Who you know, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, I don't know him. Know him. I have a book on my shelf, and I, I revere him from distance on the socials. <laughs> He's uh, a lovely, lovely man, and uh-huh. and is also a tequila hound, uh, yeah. like myself. And mm-hmm. he turned me on to this uh, this tequila, which is not expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tequila called San Matias Gran Reserva. Right. Uh, and so, and I get not paid at all for saying their name, nor no. do I ever get any free bottles but if they wanted to send me some free bottles i would certainly (laughs) accept them um anyway the um, uh, it is one of my favorites now and it's just a delightful delightful tequila it doesn't need anything but a squeeze of lime on the rocks and it's just an absolute killer and so that we're just going to go pure we're going pure 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 pure, squeeze of lime into a little bit of san matias grand reserva tequila uh-huh. And we will sit there and we'll probably pour ourselves a triple um, because, you know, it's that kind of week. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Well, I'll, um, I'll attempt to um, recreate that incredibly complicated drink using the yeah. uh, ingredients in my desktop bar. Um, I, I didn't suspect hear, you're going to have more ingredients than I do this week. Yeah. Did you, did you put ice in yours? Uh, yes, indeed. Over the, on the rocks. Uh, splendid. And I am, let me see. So again, I have got the lightest of English tequilas uh, called Bombay Sapphire Dry Gin. So, yes. And this, uh, that is the opposite of what this is. But yes, so go ahead. <laughs> oh, was it a heavy tequila this week? Oh, is the Grand Reserve is it not a heavy. It's, it's not heavy. It's just it's mm-hmm. got a it's got a dis- very distinct flavoring from the aging process. So it's a Grand Reserve. So it's been you know it's been aging a bit. So there is there's definitely a flavor to it, which makes it beautiful when it's pure like that. Splendid. And I am going to impure my gin with some which isn't even pure tonic water. It's cucumber tonic water by the good people uh-huh. at Fever Tree. If anybody's listening. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I've never had any kind of action from the various gin companies. No, never, no, and, I know neither. Nobody. Yeah. Uh, and I think Dennis, Dennis, Dennis Shaw has completely given up trying to promote me now. I need to fire him as my gin manager. I think. Let me try. Yeah. This. Yeah. Mmm. That's delicious, Robert. Very nice indeed. Mine's Very slightly good. less pure than yours. And what did we call that? Uh, well, isn't that uh, isn't that just the way? I mean. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what do we call that, sir? Uh, well, it, it, you know, if we're, if, first of all, we have to travel somewhere. Uh-huh. And where we are going to travel mm-hmm. this, uh, this week, um, yes. have you ever been to, you've been to Greece, yes? Yes, I have. Yes, I've been to the islands. And so have you been to Santorini? No, I haven't been to Santorini. I, I, it's, it's on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really want to go to Santorini. I was at, I was in Greece when I was a, a, a very young man and, and yeah. in, um, and, and went with a tour group and, yeah. you know, and did the Athens thing and with the Acropolis yeah. and the yeah. ruins and the Olympics and all that kind of stuff, which is yeah. great. I mean, it was, yeah. 
you know, definitely one of my highlight trips of, of all time. Mm-hmm. But we did not get to any of the Greek Isles, you know, yes. and, and especially Santorini, where I really, really, really want to go. And so, yeah. Because we can go anywhere in this mm-hmm. show, um, yeah. I think we should go to Santorini and sit on the beach and drink these, uh, the, drink this lovely tequila uh, as we yes. watch the sunset there. I think that's fantastic, isn't it? The local delicacy is Uzo, isn't it? I think so. We may, yeah. we may, we may, be, may have to find out if there's a decent version of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. but that that sounds fantastic. So we're we're there, and um, yes, where have I been? I've I've been to one of the islands I can't remember the name of, and I've been to Rhodes, I think, as well. So yes, very nice. Um, and um, me and my wife went, I think, before we had our children. So that's quite a long time ago. Oh, lovely. Um, but uh, yes. Uh, so we, uh, as we say each week, we would go to these lovely places and not talk about marketing. But if we were to talk about marketing, what would we be talking about this week, Robert? You know, this, I, so I'm just coming off of a, so every year mm-hmm. I do a, I guess you call it a mastermind. I don't know whether it's a mastermind or not. It's something I've been doing for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, I, what it is, 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 is my, I call it kind of brain yoga or mind yoga or something like mm-hmm. that because what it ends up, what it ends up doing is, is really stretching my, uh, imagination and my thinking because it's a group of people that I've, again, I've been getting together with them for the last 10 years and they come from all different industries, yeah. primarily in the economics and finance industry. So there's economists, there's financial advisors, there's uh, you know, hedge fund managers, there's big uh, professors from um, university, mm-hmm. there are some artists that come, there are some, uh, you know, head CEOs and, you know, heads of business of mm-hmm. big, big companies, some startups. It's really just a group of very, you know, accomplished, I don't know what the hell they do investing in me, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but very accomplished people who get together uh, each year. Um, uh-huh. And usually it's in uh, a beautiful place like uh, Santorini, um, mm-hmm. in, usually here in the U.S. But mm-hmm. of course, the last couple of years have been, you know, uh, locked down because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it's been on Zoom for the for the get together. And this year we just finished it. And there was something that really struck my attention. And it's got you know me thinking a lot, which is so on the first day they had this professional magician sort of. <laughs> take us behind the scenes of a magic trick yeah and and basically show us how it's done right everything show the, the whole trick and one of the things and it was a card trick and i i can explain the card trick if we if we have time or want to mm-hmm. but, but basically at the card trick it was one of those things where you know he's making cracking jokes as he does the card trick and boom 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 yeah. and brings an audience up and the audience picks a card and the whole thing right and and one of the things as he did the card trick was he, you know, it, the, the sort of heart or the trick of the trick was he puts, he a, has a card in his hand and he puts it down as he says, you know, he says to the audience member, tell me when to stop. Mm-hmm. And, and he's peeling out cards and then the audience member goes stop. And usually it's right when he's got, you know, a card in his hand that he's about to lay down and one, you know, then he's got the deck in the other hand. Yeah. And as it works out, he knows which card is which, because when the audience member says stop, it's one of the two cards, either the top card in the deck or the one in his hand. Right. 
Now the key is the audience member has said stop. And he calls this the moment of ambiguity. And he says, <laughs> the key is for any magician to play the moment of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was amazing because basically what he does is he, he, he doesn't let the audience member catch him in that moment of ambiguity because right. he knows which card he wants to be, the stop card. Yeah. But the audience member it, it may also have an opinion on that, but he doesn't let the <laughs> audience. He, he moves very quickly and swiftly and goes, ah, and it's, yeah. it's the card in his hand. He just puts down the deck and goes, this is your stop card. We'll put it yeah. down for a moment and then we'll crack a couple more jokes before we turn it over and reveal that it was your card and how, what a wonderful trick. Yeah. So the interesting thing to me is that moment of ambiguity because it's something for us as content creators, as people who create thought leadership of content, it's something we can play with as well mm -hmm. because, you know, for example, if we're writing a story, right, and we've stumbled upon some interesting way to improve a process, well, instead of jumping right to the how-to of the solution, well, what if you set up some metaphorical story to sort of set up the tension and guide the audience yeah. to the answer, and hopefully it's entertaining and all of that, and then, you know, you go, oh, there you go, boom. I've got mm -hmm. the answer for you. And you sort of, you know, so in other words, you use that moment of ambiguity when you set up the big question with the audience, like, will it or won't yeah. it? Yeah. And you already know where you're bringing the audience, but you bring mm -hmm. them there in an unexpected way without letting them make a decision one way or mm -hmm. the other and playing that moment of ambiguity to help get to the end of the story and be much more satisfying right. at the answer. Yeah. And that's just a really cool trick I thought that the magician could teach us. Yeah, I love that because um, I was reading, uh, well, I mean, you hear this a lot, don't you, about B2B marketing, about the fact that really uh, a lot of um, B2B marketing, you just screen the solution before you get, before you do any of that kind of talking about the problem or, you know, it's, you know, these are the features, this is the product, you know, rather than working our way to, uh, through the the journey of the of the buyer and, and what they what the challenges they have and and all of that stuff um, exactly it's the yeah. it's that you know you know it's like the the classic case study it's like you know yeah. bob had a problem and <laughs> magically we've got a solution for it right and, and yeah yeah and then and then what happens is is that the audience either goes oh okay yeah. not very interesting but yeah, yeah. whatever yeah. You know, okay, great. Thank you for the solution. And, you know, everything's yeah. unicorns and rainbows and, and, yeah. and, you know, this, and that's a case study, right? Yeah. But instead, if we play with that little moment of ambiguity where we yeah. set up a question yeah. where it could go either way, but we yeah. very quickly go to something that takes your mind out of that, takes the audience's mm -hmm. mind out of the ambiguity there yeah. and helps set up the, set up the solution so that yeah. by that time you get to the solution, the audience feels like they made the decision. Mm -hmm. And if yeah. you can do that, you've, you've created something that's not only engaging and entertaining, but also yeah. instructive, right? You also, you created a bit of magic for that, getting yeah. to that solution. And it's much more powerful. Yeah. The interesting thing there about case studies, the really hard bit um, of, of case studies is the, the problem is, you know, it's, it's like the hero's journey that I know you talk about in your content marketing books um, is you, is you can't get anybody to talk about the challenge in, in case it makes either the company, you know, 
one side of the case study looks bad. You know what I mean? Like we had, you know, we were we were a complete shambles. You know, <laughs> and and it's like, well, nobody wants the the to to say how terrible, you know, that to go through the pain of the journey of of how they came to implement this great piece of software that's now changed their lives. It didn't all go. We had a problem, and then Bob came and saved the day. It's you know there was right. there were a number of iterations through that, and and that's some right. of that story is hugely valuable to other people that are trying to make that same journey. But some of it, people just don't want to be told, do they? Right, or or the uh, you know or the implications or the challenges that came yeah. up from choosing the right. Solution. Yes. Yes. You know, which is also something that we're very shy to to do. Yeah. It's like, you yeah. know, you know, we don't want to point out the fact that, you know, if you choose this, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, yeah. you know, yeah. and yeah. and it's going to be it's the right answer, but guess what? You're in for a big adventure. It's it, yeah. it's sort of like we go no, it's going to be simple and easy and awesome and yeah. great. And what you do with the audience is they go, I don't believe you for one <laughs> minute. Yeah, yeah. 18 months ago, we had a problem. And today, everything's excellent. Sorry, did you say 18 months ago? What happened there? Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> what, what happened in months 11 and 12? Oh, well, that was when I started drinking. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> That's when I started my heroin addiction. Yes, that's you know. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's this is an excellent point. So, so what you're saying is that we need to tell better stories, and we should we should um, we should reveal the solution, much like this magician that was teaching you. Yeah, exactly. Set up the ambiguity and let the and 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 play with it. Right. Let the yeah. you know that was what was so fascinating to me was yeah. that he purposely sets it up like that. Because yeah. he has to, and in, yeah. in order to make the trick work, he has to set it up like that. Yeah. But the moment, it, it, what was so fascinating to me when listening to him talk was, instead of just going, oh, and rushing and going, okay, you pick this card, right? Yeah. He actually paused for a moment there and played with that moment of ambiguity and made a joke. Yeah. And the way he made that joke, by the way, was he said, you know, so he had the deck of cards in one hand and the and the and the card in the other hand. And by the way, it, again, it could be either card depending on yeah. when the person says stop. Yeah. Um. And and so it, it can be one of those two cards. So, but and he doesn't know which one to actually choose. Well, he knows which one he needs to choose. Yeah. But he 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 needs to give the impression to the audience that they have a choice without giving them a choice. Yeah. That's that moment of ambiguity. It. And what was so amazing yeah. to me was. The easy way out, the sort of, you know, cheat, if you will, is to just force it, right? Is to just yeah. put the deck aside and then have the other card and go, boom, there you go. That's your, that's going to yeah. be your card. That's where you told me to stop yeah. and not let the audience make a choice. But what he yeah. does is he stops and tells a joke at that moment and goes, yeah. you, he's like, you, hey, wait a minute. You just told me to stop here and I've got two cards in my hand. What are you talking about? You're, you're driving me crazy here. Are you, and it's, ha, 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 everybody <laughs> thinks he's funny. Yeah. And then he goes, all right, now let's just move along and let's, and then he just sort of casually puts down the one he doesn't want. Yeah. And so he actually plays with that moment that of ambiguity yeah. And, yeah. and, and actually takes longer than you think you should to actually yeah. be in that moment, which makes it even more powerful that you think it was ultimately your choice. Yeah. 
Can you imagine? Can you can you imagine if um, if uh, if we if we were to be particularly B two B marketing that was like a thriller that you didn't really know how it was going to end? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, yeah. We'll 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 solve their problem in this case. Study, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, how about how great a case study would that be, right? I mean, <laughs> a rip roaring me. Yeah, it's a page turner. No, no, I love it. I love it. Thank you very much, Robert. And where can we find other thoughts such as this if we were to? Stick oh well, you know. So, <laughs> If I were to actually uh, play with my own ambiguity, I would probably blog more than I do. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we've been very busy. Uh, this is a, uh, and, and by the way, I've written on what a bullshit excuse the cobbler's kids uh, idea yes. is. Um, so I am definitely not following my own medicine here. But typically when, when we do publish, and I am going to catch up. Um, yeah. We publish at uh, contentadvisory.net, which is, of course, our little home on the, on the interwebs. Yeah. And uh, well, I mean, I think you've got a ton of evergreen stuff there. So I think it's well worth a trip through. through, Uh, through We do, but it's no excuse. That's that we do, but it's no excuse. (laughs) It's absolutely zero excuse. (laughs) I love it. And, um, and when, and when they're looking for you, Robert, where will they find you? Oh, well, they'll find us on the uh, social media at uh, Robert underscore Rose on Twitter. And Uh of course, a wonderful uh, sort of uh, LinkedIn keyword search thing. Uh, You know, LinkedIn, do that. Absolutely. And I'll (laughs) include links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you very much, my friend. And um, you find it comfortable up there in the... um in the air condition. No, I I think we need to we need to open up that space a little bit. I need a I'm going to need some uh you know, I'm looking at some new IKEA furniture up there and I'm going to we're going to we're going to need to sort out my living conditions up in the bar. <laughs> well, there's always the piano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. I shall um I shall try and lure you back down from the uh, from there next week. Um that sounds uh, I fantastic. assume you'll be there. <laughs> See you then. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Thank you, Robert. Time to add a bit of magic to our content marketing. So that's a wrap on episode 65 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. Thanks again to Judy, Richard and Robert. I really appreciate their time. So please thank them by checking out the show notes, clicking their links, follow them and take a look at their work. You can find the show notes at rockstarcmo.fm where you can also find all our previous episodes. But most of all, thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and driving along with us. Does the world need another Effing Martin podcast? Let me know what you think. Please leave a rating, review and subscribe or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Julie Ogilvy will be back. I'm chatting to one of our listeners, Julia Bennett, the brand new CMO of global law firm Brown and Rudnick. And it sounds like I'll find Robert Rose in our virtual rockstar CMO bar. Until then, I've been your host, Ian Truscott, and I hope you'll join us next week here at Rockstar CMO FM. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. 
Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.